Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as mm-hmm. soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online, and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough, and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then, and you're re- enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week. He says, thank you for taking my email in question. My girlfriend and I listen to you on the radio and she respects your opinion as I do. So here's the question. I've been separated for nine months. I'm working on a divorce. Is it okay to date? I believe it is. But she's not comfortable with being around people who know my divorce is not final. Can you help? He kind of answered it when he said if she's not comfortable, it's not a good gig. And that is so true. You know, in a relationship, you have to be able to negotiate and compromise when you don't share the same values. And you know me, Carol Jurgenpenny, she's a.k.a. Carol the Coach Hey. I don't believe that you should have any kind of relationship with somebody else that's intimate until you have closed out another one. And so his girlfriend has every right to question where they're going in life. And that's important. I stand by those values. You know, this is not related to sexual addiction, but I was talking with a woman today and She said, I went to the pool. She's about 50, a really nice woman. She said, I went to the pool, and I hung out with two 20-somethings, and I was kind of getting a kick out of them. They were a little hungover. They were talking about how life is so hard. And they were using the F word all over the place. And this other woman came up to one of them and said, I would appreciate if you watch your language, because I've got a 13 and a 14-year-old here at the pool. And so this woman, we'll call her Tracy. Tracy looked at me and said, what do you think about that? 
And I said, well, Tracy, I want to know what you think about that. And she said, well, I thought that was really kind of inappropriate for her to put these kids down because they're doing what they do, and it didn't bother me. And, you know, I just didn't think it was right. Now, here's what I really think, and this is what I told Tracy. I said, you know, Tracy, the important thing is that this woman stood up for what she believes in. She has specific values, and she needs to be able to share how she feels, what she thinks, and what she believes. That is called assertiveness. And I understand where in a public place she does not want her children exposed to the upward. I appreciate the fact that she stood up for that. I really, really do. Now, I can understand, you know, my middle name is Empathy. I can understand where Tracy did not think it was a big deal and felt like this woman had intruded upon their experience. But the bottom line is that when you have a specific feeling, when you have a value, and you feel it's important to stand up for that, it is absolutely okay to speak your mind. What does that mean? That means that you're clear and direct about how you feel, what you believe, and what you think. Called assertiveness. It does not mean you get your way. Okay? It just means that you spoke up for your beliefs. And so... I know that Tracy may have been looking across the office at me and thinking, oh, my gosh, not another prude. But the bottom line is, when I talked with Patrick Carnes about sex addiction, and in his training, he tells all of us as professionals, hey, you know what you got to do? You got to be able to talk to these men and women in professional terms and don't use slang. It may be easier to say the word blowjob than it is oral sex, but reference it as oral sex. It may be easier to do A, but reference it as B, because that's professional, and we want people to understand that when addiction has occurred, it has dumbed down your expectations. And so I'm a big believer in Talk in proper terms, advocating for what you believe, and standing up for your values no matter what they are, even if I don't agree with them. They're your values, and they're important to you. So now, I got an email from somebody who said, my husband is a sex addict. And our marriage is barely tolerable. He's been distant and has experienced a lot of depression in his entire life. I'm only at a place of feeling like I could again just tolerate married life with him. You know, I'd love to forgive him for his sex addiction. And I pray to forgive him. Yet I still don't know all that I'm forgiving. He denies porn, yet when he was out of town last September, an image of a woman in underwear popped up on his email. My computer was broken, 
and I had to print a shipping label off his email. I wasn't looking for evidence because I totally believed his statements about no porn, so I was shocked. He told me months earlier that he began looking at catalogs of women and underwear around age six. Looked at Playboy in junior and high school. Yet he denies it in our marriage. He lost a really good job 15 years ago but says he doesn't know why. And it definitely wasn't because of ethics. Okay, Carol, is my confusion due to his gaslighting or should I believe him? Or should I believe he's lying? I am exhausted. She then says, I bought your book not knowing it was you who wrote it. It's excellent advice for healing. As I first began reading it, I thought there's no way he can ever do what you've suggested. I really believe he's not capable. My therapist recommends a polygraph before the disclosure. That's what this woman wants. She wants the disclosure. My husband said he knows he will be asked if everything is written is that is written is accurate, and he will say yes. But I believe he's the expert of omission. What do I do, Carol? What do I do when my gut says he is not being honest? What do I do when my gut says he has never been honest? Okay, so here's the deal. You know that I feel like I'm an expert on disclosures. I do them all the time. And disclosures are a way to find out the truth. And if your therapist wants him to do a polygraph before, that will be to ask him, is he going to be 100% honest for the disclosure? You know, sometimes therapists do that because they actually want to know intention. And sometimes they do it because they want to make sure that they don't put you through the rigors of a dishonest disclosure. It's a hard process for both of you. And so if he's going to be dishonest, you might as well know from the get-go. And so here's what I'm going to say, and this is not going to make me popular in the world of partners. But it's the honest-to-gosh truth, and it's a byproduct of the collateral damage of a sex addict lying. Now, we all know, whether you're in a relationship or not, sex addicts lie. Lying is the foundation for addiction in general. That's where the word denial comes from. Don't even know I am lying. And the truth of the matter is that you don't know what to believe. And your gut is trying to protect you. And you've been deceived so much. I don't blame you for feeling like he's going to lie and that he can't be honest. And maybe he can't, or maybe he can, but if he's been prepped by a good therapist who helps to convince him that it is important to, to tell everything, to get it all out, so that he himself doesn't hold any lies, and he doesn't hold any lies from you, if that's indeed what you want, the entire truth, I don't blame you for not trusting him. And that pre-disclosure poly is going to be important. 
followed by the post-disclosure poly. And that poly will help you to know whether you can trust them again. And, it's, and, you know, so I said I wouldn't be popular with the partners because your distrust, mistrust, skepticism is normal, natural, and necessary to protect you. However, I work with a lot of addicts who do want to tell the truth. And when they do, they have no intention of lying, and their wives still feel they're lying. I just had a woman the other day that said, Carol, I need a second polygrapher. His polygraphs are coming back true, and I don't necessarily believe it. I want a second polygraph with somebody totally new. Well, I didn't think she was being unreasonable. I thought to myself, yes, yeah, she's having a hard time believing that this deceitful, lying, dishonest addict is now in recovery and he's working hard at being honest, at being transparent, and in being authentic. And for that reason, if she needs another polygrapher to give another polygraph test, I'm going to get that for her. So I actually, you know, I'm from Indianapolis, and we got the greatest polygrapher here in the city, but I went ahead and referred her to Cincinnati because we got other poly, uh, polygraphers here, but I don't know their work, and I'm not just going to turn it over to them. I want somebody who understands sexual addiction. And hopefully a path, if it came out that he didn't, I would be surprised. I'd have to admit that I would be surprised, but it wouldn't be the first time an addict had fooled me. Most of the time they don't, but on occasion they do, and when they do, I'm not surprised because I don't have, I have good gut, but it's not 100% accurate, just like a partner's isn't, just like an addict's isn't. So I don't blame her. Now, what I'm here to do is make things better for her. Now, you know, tonight we're going to be talking with Elijah. He's a therapist, and he believes that an addict can move towards recovery when they move closer to an understanding of their own feelings, intimacy, and spirituality. So he's going to be sharing with us his thoughts on finding that serenity and the purpose that accompanies that when one works the program. And if you're somebody who's listening, maybe you're not an addict, or maybe you just wish you could find your purpose and passion, you can go to my website, Sex Health with Carol the Coach, and I have this shortcut manual on finding your God-given dream, finding your purpose and your passion. If you're a clinician and coach, you are welcome to buy it and, you know, go ahead and, and um, copy the pages. It's for anybody who wants to figure out what is their purpose and passion. But what I guarantee you is that finding your God-given gift, finding your purpose and passion shows up in lots of different ways. So I am really excited that Elijah is going to help us to figure out how to do that. And that's why I decided to have him on on the show. I I read a blog of his, and I was so impressed by it that I said, okay, 
this is somebody that I need to talk to because everybody knows that the first three steps in the 12-step program is about finding your higher power, recognizing your life is unmanageable by yourself, and surrendering to that. And I could tell that this was a man who 100% had, um, had a good idea of what spirituality meant to him. So, Elijah, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Hi there, Carol. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. And I told you I was really impressed with that blog that you had done. I could tell you had really thought through what spirituality can mean for addiction and addiction recovery. So tell us a little bit about your story. What made you write that blog? Absolutely. Uh, thanks for asking that question. You know, so uh, so I'll start off with, you know, I'm not an expert in spirituality, but what, what got me thinking about uh, spirituality is that so many clients, you know, in session, it, it becomes, uh, it, it oftentimes comes back to that spirituality, a uh, sense of purpose, a sense of what am I doing here. And um, for many people, they seek out therapy, not many people, but some people, you know, based on religious abuses or things like that uh, kind of nature. And so there's, you know, they're, they're really questioning their sense of higher power, their sense of spirituality. What does this mean if I've suffered this abuse at the hands of, you know, a, a faith that I deeply believe in? So that was kind of what got my wheels uh, turning about this topic. Well, and you obviously have um, worked with a lot of addicts. You're a therapist and a CSAT, correct? I'm actually not a CSAT, but I do work with, with addicts quite a bit. And I, and I do work, uh, so PCS, uh, quite a bit of sex addiction. Yeah, I send a lot of people to PCS, and I find it to be one of the best treatment centers in, in the United States. So I just assumed you were a CSAT because you seem to know so much about this topic. And so tell me what you found with addicts who are finding recovery or who are in good recovery. What do you see in terms of their relationship with spirituality? So I think that one of the first things that, you know, that I've found is that uh, many people struggle with uh, step one, just believing in a, in, a, in a higher power and what does that mean. Um, and so for many folks who, who um, are new to even the idea of being a sexual addict, they know something's not right in their lives, but, you know, that's a whole other story to accepting that label they're really resistant against going into any kind of 12-step program because of the first step. And it's sort of like, well, if I can't, if I don't have a higher power, then how can I possibly, uh, you know, go into 12-step and, and kind of get the, the help that I need? And so, you know, there's lots of uh, ways to work around that and through the idea of, well, what do you believe? What is your sense of, is there something uh, greater than yourself? When you grew up, what was your experience with religion, with uh, spirituality? And so, you know, common things that people do uh, is they will make the group their higher power if they're struggling with that uh, early on, uh, or they will make, um, you know, nature their higher power uh, or their sense of spirituality, and they use that. And that's, that just allows them to get started into, uh, into a 12-step program that can be really beneficial. Um, my belief is that another part of spirituality is about, it's about connection with ourselves and connection with people, 
And so oftentimes there's, there's, a, there's a spirituality inside of a group meeting, like a 12-step, where people are really connected and they are helping other people who are struggling you know, with the same things. Uh, with people who are uh, successful in their recovery, um, it, it's, they, they may, for some of them who already have a faith, it's kind of getting back to that. Oftentimes when they show up in the therapy rooms, it's really about, man, my, my behaviors are so incongruent with what I actually believe, I mean, faith or otherwise. And so helping them to reconnect back with, well, you know, what, what are your beliefs? What is your sense of purpose? What is your sense of spirituality? And how far away uh, are you with your behaviors from those types of beliefs? And, you know, sometimes yeah. they know it and they know it when they're, when they're out there doing things. But just having that discussion to kind of re- reframe that is, can be really useful. Yeah, so let's go over for anybody who may not be familiar with the 12 steps. Can you go over step one, step two, and step three? Because that's the the beginning gateway of finding your spirituality. Sure. Um, And so let me also just say that, you know, I'm not uh, not, uh, in the 12 steps myself. I'm not well, well versed in that stuff, but I know how, how helpful that can be. But, and you can help me out if I, if I slip here, but, I know that uh, step one is all about powerlessness and unmanageability and recognizing that, um, that what you're doing in your life is not a sustainable uh, thing um, and that, uh, you know, you are powerless to overcome this addiction by yourself. And so the idea of uh, being able to have a group and a higher power to be able to help you to overcome uh, that addiction. Um, so actually... Let's see here. If you want to just help me, remind me of, uh, for some reason, my brain is going a little bit blank here, Carol. Yeah. No, that's absolutely okay. So step one is recognizing that your life has become unmanageable and a power greater than yourself has to restore you to sanity. And then step two is understanding that you need to ask for that help. And then step three is about surrendering to it. And you believe, you've got this belief system that says, you know, life continues to ask us familiar questions. What's the best way to adapt to this environment? How do you adapt to the struggle or challenge? And what is the best way to live? And so I know that you believe spirituality, that, that relationship with spirituality, and as you just indicated earlier, it can be a variety of things is one of the conduits to being able to figure out your life. So now I'm going to ask you, when you look at addiction and compulsive behaviors, mm-hmm. what, what or how does that rela- relate to a lack of spirituality? Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, you know, it's, if, if, uh, spirituality and uh, is about connection with yourself and with your others. And what I've found is that addiction is very much uh, seemingly about um, running away, about medicating, about getting outside of one's body, about chasing uh, pleasure, about avoiding pain. My belief is that spirituality is actually much more about uh, finding the, the subtle gradations of life, whether, you know, be from, very painful things to really intense euphoria 
and embracing more of the full spectrum uh, of life. And I think that goes towards the idea of, um, you know, answering the questions that life puts in front of you. And oftentimes we get asked the same question over and over, and we wonder why we get stuck in these loops and we wonder why we get stuck in these patterns. And I found that, you know, working with people to help to slow them down um, and to, to, to get centered in their, in their selves as far as what are my values, what is going on in my body, what are my feelings telling me, what are the decisions that I've made in my life thus far, my relationships telling me, can begin to help to answer whatever the question is that life is asking us in a way that moves us forward versus being stuck, you know, more in, in, in a loop. Absolutely, and you and I both know that addiction and compulsive behaviors feel so out of control that people don't know how to get out of that loop. And so when you talk about doing the next right thing with Mm -hmm. clients who are struggling with their own sexual compulsivity, what does that mean? And so that's, you know, that's a really good question. And it's, I think it means, uh, it can mean different things to different people, but it, but a lot of it comes down to, you know, what is the person's values? What is, what's meaningful in my life? Uh, what feels right uh, when I do it versus what makes me feel like I need to keep this a secret or live in shame uh, about what I'm doing? And so a lot of it is constrained by, I believe, cultural beliefs, beliefs of the time as far as what we think is the right thing to do. What I've also found, though, in working with people and their trauma and their background is that sometimes, you know, people's cultural beliefs or the pervading belief of the day is, uh, is not helpful uh, um, or can be traumatic, um, you know, to, uh, to do to somebody. So what I found is, you know, human beings, we develop and we look for love and we look for nurture and we look for attachment and we look for acceptance and we look for affection. And so even if there's uh, cultural values or societal values that say the opposite of that, and that's just what's accepted, it ends up being, I have found, a trauma to the human psyche. Um, when we are disconnected, when we feel uh, rejected, when we feel less than, when we feel silenced, when we don't have the ability to uh, express our emotions or express our, our thoughts or our belief systems, there's cultures or those value systems that say, you know, you should not or don't do this, but it doesn't mean that that's what's best for people. So as far as the right thing, there's a lot of subjectivity, but I've also found that human beings, uh, again, love, nurture, protection, uh, connection, and when those things are thwarted, even if it's the cultural belief, the pervading belief at time, it can end up being stressful and or traumatic for people. Yeah, and so... Obviously, you say traumatic to people, and we work, both you and I work a lot with trauma. Now, do you think that trauma can be healed when you develop a relationship with your own self and your own feelings, intimacy, and spirituality? Yeah, 100%, 100%. one of, the, one of the most fascinating things just week after week is uh, people find healing uh, when they connect with the younger wounded parts of their selves um, and, and just sort of uh, without fail. And, and a lot of times the patterns that people get stuck in different loops or, you know, choosing 
relationship partners that are not ideal or not good for them, a lot of it you know, cuts right back to uh, things in childhood and what they saw and what they uh, and what they witnessed. And so being able to connect with oneself, being able to connect with one's trauma, to be able to empathize with younger versions of ourselves, absolutely 100% is a big part of, I think, um, healing. It's a big part of uh, spirituality. It's a big part of being in tune with who we are, who our community uh, is, who it, who it maybe should be, ideally. But it's a tremendous part of, of moving forward and being connected and, and also, you know, therefore to me, uh, it's spiritual. Well, and you have this concept because we were just talking about doing the next right thing. And, and anybody who's worked in the 12-step program, you know, mm-hmm. oftentimes their sponsor or the program fellowship will say, you know, I know you don't know what you think you need to do, but just do the next right thing. And then you talk about a different concept, and that is failing forward. So talk a little bit about what that concept is all about. Yeah, you know, so I think that when we try to do the next right thing, because we are imperfect people, we end up, um, you know, maybe failing is, is, is a strong word for some people, but we end up failing or we end up at least not doing what we set out to do. And the idea of, you know, can I, can I allow myself enough space to make uh, mistakes? Can I allow myself enough space to do what's, what's not right uh, in the longer journey to figure out what is right and what is actually um, going on? And I also think as far as failing forward, that happens on an individual basis. It happens in our relationships. It happens in our family systems. You know, it, it happens uh, in our communities and in, in our pervading belief as well as far as failing forward. Um, and so a big part of it is, is really it, it's about figuring things out, but it's sort of like, you know, how in line with what is right am I doing right now? And maybe in 10 years I find out that what I was doing wasn't right, even though it felt right at the time, uh, but I'm probably on a better path there than if I know that my behaviors and my value system are way out of, out of touch. Okay, so it sounds like you're really asking addicts that are working on their recovery to be gentle with themselves and to recognize that if they do the next right thing and it isn't the right thing or it doesn't work out for them or later on they think, oh, I should have done it a different way, that that's all a process by which they develop the emotional maturity to know next time what to do differently. And that there really is no concept of failing because if you fail forward, it just means you move yourself to a better personal growth, more development, if you will. Yeah, no, I, I, com- I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't agree more. And, and sometimes, you know, people are really, a, they're, they're afraid of not doing things right or, you know, um, they, they go through an intensive and they say, okay, I have so much information and now I just kind of, I need to put this into practice and I'm really scared of, of doing this right. And my first piece of feedback to them is you won't. You're not going to do it all the way right. And so it's not a matter of will I uh, do this perfectly. You're not going to do it perfectly. But it's a matter of and when I don't do this perfectly, what do I do next? And the next right thing might be being in consultation with your sponsor, being in consultation with your therapist, being in consultation with your family, 
um, in order to help to figure out what is the next right thing. And it's to speak to the development piece, you know, a lot of times uh, folks that are struggling with addiction, there is a, a, a developmental piece, you know, frozen development. Something happened to them um, and they began using drugs maybe at a certain age and oftentimes their development kind of freezes at that age and maybe they're functioning at kind of a higher level like holding down a job, they have a wife, they have a family. Um, but oftentimes once, you know, once they, they get sober, whether it's substance, whether it's sex, uh, there's these, these, these sort of developmental issues that, are, that need to be tended to and need to be addressed. And oftentimes, you know, one of the first places you see that is in their relationships. You know, there might be comments of, you know, they're really, they're really immature or they're really selfish. My belief is that oftentimes narcissism is, uh, is about that. It's about frozen, uh, frozen development. And so when you're younger, you're supposed to be centric. You're supposed to have a focus on yourself. And it's only when you're older and we're adults that there's more of a belief of, well, you know, maybe it's time now that you, that you tend to other people and think about other people. And so when that's not happening, you know, uh, then it can be very frustrating to the people that that person is in a relationship with, whether it's, you know, their, uh, their employer, coworkers, their family, their, their wife, their husband kind of thing. And so oftentimes uh, that's just been my, that's been my, um, my experience. No, and I get that. You know, um, you work in a treatment center, so you obviously get to work with people intensively. And that is a, a real luxury uh, to be able to have a concentrated amount of time to ha- help the person to heal as well as for them to get out of their environment so that they really have time to reflect on what they think, what they emotionally feel, and what they intuitively know. And, you know, it's interesting, Elijah, one of the things I say is that when making a good decision, whether it's a recovery decision or just a life decision, you really need to say to yourself, what do I think, how do I feel, and what do I know? And oftentimes people in recovery, early recovery especially, will go, I don't know what I know. And I say, well, get real quiet and channel what you believe your intuition would say. Because what I know to be true is intuition is really that connection to spirituality. It's that ability to be able to very much channel what might be the right situation for them. Now, how do you tie in one's recovery or healing to spirituality. I mean, what do you advise them to do when it comes to developing their own spiritual self? Yeah, and so it kind of depends on where they're coming from as far as do they already have a faith? Do they already have uh, a religion? So for some people, it's fairly simple. It's getting reconnected with what already worked for them. Uh, as far as a church, as far as a synagogue, as far as a mosque, and that's where, you know, they feel connected, they have a sense of spirituality. For other people that are struggling with it, um, you know, for some people, uh, it, it's it's just nature. You know, they go out to a mountain peak, they go out to the beach, they go out to other places and maybe in solitude by themselves, and they can connect with what's bigger than them and, and what is around them. I think there's also can be these... Um, 
connecting points really through, you know, through dialogue. Um, so sometimes group can be a spiritual experience. Sometimes journaling or the arts, you can, there's, there's uh, spiritual experiences that are, that are accessed there when sort of the highest forms of emotion or the lowest forms of emotion are being expressed through plays or music uh, or painting or things like that. Um, so if, to me, going back to spirituality, it's about, it's about connection. And am I connected with uh, what this piece of art or music or this person sitting across from me having coffee is trying to say? Is there a connection there? Yeah, and, and so, again, how did you get so wise? How did you figure mm-hmm. all this out? Yeah, I, I so appreciate that. I don't know that I am, really. I think I've learned a lot from uh, mentors who've taught me, and I've learned a lot from clients. Uh, I think that there, I have experienced, you know, spiritual moments in session with people uh, when I allow myself to be educated. Uh, I, I've found that that's actually, um, you know, sometimes you can get trapped into the therapist hat. That this is my belief, my experience. But when I'm when I'm only trapped in, in the therapist hat, I oftentimes lose the ability, and I'm only the educator. I lose the ability for myself to be educated. So if I've learned if I've learned something over the years, it's because I've had really good teachers and really good mentors who have done what I've talked about which is allowing me to fail forward, allowing, you know, scooping me up when I've done things uh, that, you know, maybe aren't the, uh, the best decision or the best choice and said, okay, so, you know, this is a different way of going about that or this is a different way of tending to somebody or understanding what is going on. And, and then in the therapy room as well, just trying to absorb people's stories to understand uh, where they're coming from. I think there's a lot to be said about the clinical model about, um, understanding someone objectively. And then I think that most of that gets lost if there's not a human factor uh, in the room to, to not, for me to not forget that I am part of this healing process and I can't be uh, a blank slate for this person to project onto. That doesn't work really in my mind. Uh, and when I can allow myself to be vulnerable in that way and real in that way with the people that I'm working with, obviously to, to a degree, there's, you know, there are still boundaries, professional boundaries, but then, then I can be connected and there's these moments that I can have of real growth and even spirituality at times. Well, I think that's inspirational. I believe that when our listening audience, who oftentimes are our clients, hear that they have been the inspiration for a spiritual moment for their counselor, uh, for the group, or for a 12-step meeting, it really helps them to feel like they have a purpose and a passion too. And you know that 12th step is all about giving back. And so you don't have to go through each step to get to special times when the 12th step just naturally occurs. You're giving back because you have something that other people want. And you don't even necessarily have to own it you're just sharing it, and you realize how valuable that is. Now, yes. you have discussed that part of being spiritual as being familiar with the feeling of not having done the right thing. And Correct. that is yeah. so counterintuitive to what people believe spirituality is. They think it's always yeah. doing the right thing. So right. can you share with our listening audience a little bit more, because you shared a little bit earlier, 
about how doing um, things that may not have been the right thing can be spiritual. Yeah, I think that I think that if you know if we follow um, our emotions um, can be teachers if we let them, and so when we have a sense of guilt, there's there's gifts with all of the the emotions, and so if we have a guilt that we have errors or we have done something wrong, that can be a really painful and humbling experience, and so through that. Uh, you know, through that humbling and through that painful experience, um, there can be this moment where we sort of connect back or connect with um, more of what we what is the right thing or what we believe is the right thing or what our community uh, believes is is the right thing. And so, I think being in touch with humility is is a part of it's a part of spirituality and it's a part of us failing forward and and leaning on other people, um, you know, to help us uh, find what is the right thing. I'm not sure if I mentioned this earlier, but I think understanding what the right thing is, it's it's almost always a community thing. So even if you're in isolation, right, and you you grew up somewhere with some type of influences, and so understanding what the right thing is is almost always in consultation to some some degree. It's always always, um, group work in a way. Yeah, exactly. And so you believe that spirituality can absolutely be influenced by one's community, and that's why the recovery program, the recovery community, is so instrumental in not only finding spirituality, but in living spirituality. So can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, about one's uh, recovery community and spirituality. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so, um, so, so being connected uh, with other people, I think, oftentimes, you know, people especially struggling with addiction, um, they've been burnt before somewhere. They may have walls up. They have a reason that they uh, that they are that they are medicating. Um, and it's sort of, you know, I make the analogy of almost like brushing off the, you know, the burn on the on the tentacles kind of thing to be able to reach out again to other people. Um, and that sense of being accepted, that sense of connecting in with other people uh, is a really beautiful, can be a really beautiful thing. You know, sometimes, again, going back to this idea of sometimes there's developmental things that, you know, that were frozen, you know, you deal with that as well, but that can be part of, the, the failing forward part of, you know, the struggle uh, and finding, you know, who you are, who you are in the context of a given group. Um, you know, oftentimes it's not all just, sometimes we think about connection with other people. We think about, oh, well, it's just, it's all just blissful and, you know, that's what spirituality, but oftentimes, um, you know, there's, there's a struggle or there's dispute, uh, but then again, there's more opportunity there for, um, owning your part, being humble, um, having the pain of doing something that maybe is not all the way right and coming back and figuring out what is right and reconciling with people. A lot of that stuff takes place in, you know, group therapy. It takes, I believe it takes place in 12-step as well. Okay. And so 
your experience absolutely is that spirituality is influenced by one's community. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that it, it, it can't not be, maybe that's a bad way of saying that, but it's, it's sort of like um, we are, uh, as people, we're always influenced uh, by each other. And so uh, it, it's really hard, you know, unless you were raised by wolves or something like that, you know, you know, you're going to be influenced by, by your, by your culture, by your community. And so your sense of spirituality, your sense of religion, your, your sense of purpose and meaning and what does life mean, all of that is heavily influenced by who you grew up around, what their beliefs were, um, yeah, and your ability to, to connect and how you connect. Yeah, I 100% agree with that too. Now, um, the other thing you believe, which I thought was very interesting, and I read it in your blog, is that it's important when you're thinking about, you know, doing the next right thing and spirituality and what that means to you that the practice of spirituality can occur through ordinary acts. So mm-hmm. can you tell me about some ordinary acts that you might deem as spiritual? Yeah. So the first one off the top of my head is, is giving to others. Um, I think there's a spirituality in that, and I think there's a there's a natural reward uh, already set up in our brains to be able to give to others when we access that. Um, and then, of course, the next thing is you know how we give to others um, is is you know because sometimes we can go overboard with that um, and and you know go to the point where it becomes uh, codependent. Um, I think that uh, the next right thing, thinking about how you're living, how does it impact other people with, with what I'm doing, I think is, you know, part of that as well. It's, it's a consideration that, you know, that you live um, and the way that you live always influence other people. And so obviously it's how we give and it is, you know, what we do, and that can be as small as opening the door for somebody and keeping it open yeah. or cutting the neighbor's yard if you know that he or she is ill and they're not really doing very well. And yeah. it can be as grand as, you know, helping to lead a spiritual retreat or a 12-step retreat or, yes. you know, just something yeah. that is very, yeah. Um, and the so other, that, the, oh yeah, go ahead. You know, I was just, I was just going to mention too, you know, it's also, it's all, it's giving to people, but I kind of made it seem kind of limited in that way. It's also the way that, you know, that you're living your life as far as even the way that you're tending to yourself, your, your self care, the diet, uh, are you, are you exercising? Um, you know, there's, there's other parts that go into that, that, that are, there's natural rewards, rewards. Um, for the way that uh, for the way that we are living, uh, and I think that tending to yourself and taking care of yourself is a it's a big part of it as well. You know, if if things are really out of balance, I guess that's the other part about my belief that spirituality is about balance. And um, so, if things are really out of balance, you know, life will tell you in different ways. Or you want to say God, or you know, however you want to characterize that. But so, for example, you know, if if one part of your life is is too heavy. So if you're, you know, um, 
for, for some folks that I've worked with, um, lots and lots of hours work at work, and so that means their families, you know, get compromised the time with them. When, you're, when your pace, the pacing of your life is too fast, you tend to not slow down enough to think about what's going on, to be mindful. And I think mindfulness and spirituality are connected as well, and your relationships tend to suffer and other things tend to suffer. So a lot of, in my mind, spirituality and doing the next right thing is about finding balance as well. What is life asking me? What are the questions? And am I answering them in the right ways through my behaviors, through the way that I'm conducting myself, uh, through trying to live more close within my value system? And I'll just share one other small piece about that. I think that oftentimes we're not 100% living with what we believe in our in our behaviors. So there's oftentimes a little bit of dissonance or a little bit of discord in that to a lot. And, and it can kind of vary, uh, you know, sometimes on a daily basis, sometimes on a weekly basis, but the idea of, of using that tension or that guilt or whatever the feelings are to come back closer into your value system and, and what is what is right. Yes, I absolutely agree with you there. As a matter of fact, it's kind of interesting that you said that. I know you're familiar with Patrick Carnes. And one of the things he says is if we're not in line, in alignment with a, a true balance, we oftentimes find ourselves being too busy. Now, in addiction, that meant that you were always looking for ways to act out to find time for the addiction, and that robbed yourself of that ability for self-care, and it robbed uh, yourself of resting the brain, and then last but not least, it robbed yourself of healthy relationships. And so in recovery, sometimes men and women can get so engulfed and engaged in recovery practices that, again, they find themselves too busy, not getting to rest the brain, lack of right. self-care, not getting to spend the time they need on their relationships. So I, I really appreciate the fact that you said that is one form of really taking care of yourself and improving your sense of spirituality because we all know that spirituality is most obvious when we're quiet and we're reflective and we're in appreciation. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, I, I think they're there. And I was listening to, I can't remember which one it was, but it was a little bit ago, one of, one of your, your blogs and you had said, you, you said that, and I agree with that a lot. And I think sometimes, um, you know, it's, uh, it's being able to get quiet and, um, and tune in to the, the voice that is speaking within, within us. And I think that's, that's what you were speaking to. You know, you can call it intuition. You can call it a spiritual voice. You can call it a God or God-like voice. But I think all of us have that uh, ability within us to quiet ourselves and to get in touch with that thing that is guiding us uh, in the ways that we, we probably should be going. Absolutely. So now we have to begin to close up our interview. And I sure. just thought if you would, because I do so endorse PCS. I think it's amazing for individual recovery. They have a great couples program. I love Earl. He's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about where you're located. What services yeah. does the center 
offer, and if you can, um, how people can get a hold of PCS. Sure. So uh, PCS is located in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, um, and so they uh, we have a we have an intensive um, with which is you know fairly well known and. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very biased. I'm part of the intensive, but I've, I've just watched uh, week after week uh, the healing that, that takes place and uh, you know, just giving kudos to both the Earls, uh, Marcus and Ralph. They have put together, I believe, uh, an incredible team here. It's an incredible uh, environment to work in. And I think that the, the, the people, the clients that come here end up having uh, pretty big breakthroughs in the week uh, that they spend here if, they, if they're doing the, the intensive. Um, and so we have different modalities that we offer, including uh, EMDR, uh, their uh, somatic experience. Um, there's other modalities. I think we have one clinician that is trained in DBT. Uh, there's psychodrama. There's group therapy. And so that mix is uh, it, it, it's pretty profound. And we use the, the Maryland model as well. Um, and so there's the, there's the intensive, and then there's also outpatient. And so I think myself and most of the other uh, therapists work both in the intensive and uh, have an outpatient, um, you know, folks to come outside the intensive as well. Yeah, and you've been there, gosh, um, how many how many months or years? It's, well, so it's coming up on three. So I haven't been here a, a tremendously long time, but yeah. And if people want to find out more about PCS, they can go to PCS at PCSEARL, E-A-R-L-E dot com, and that phone number is 480-947-5739. And I'm just curious, do you know the website for PCS? Um, actually, I, let's see here, I think it's, if you give me one moment, I can take a quick look. Yeah. To be able to look at. I don't have it right offhand, but um, and on that website, while I'm doing that, is um, you know there's a number of uh, we have blogs up there um, for people to read. We have a layout of our schedule as far as the intensive. Um, yeah. So the it's it's just PCS Earl E A R L E dot com is the website for people to visit. Well, thank you so much, and I really do. I mean, when I saw your blog on spirituality, I knew that I needed to speak speak more about this. So I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your wisdom and, and wish you continued success because I can tell you right now as a therapist to another therapist, you know, you are a gentle and kind person who allows people to be themselves, and that means they can make mistakes because that's only going to move them forward into finding their higher sense of self. So I so appreciate that, Elijah, and I, I wish you continued success. Thank you so much, Carol. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. All right. You take care and have a good day. Thank you. You as well. Bye-bye. Bye. So that, again, was somebody who really believes the spirituality is imperative in making a difference in your recovery. I happen to agree with it, too. And so to my atheists and agnostic friends, um, hey, spirituality can be being in nature. It can be 
knowing the power of a group, and it can be knowing your own intuitive sense of self. I'm going to share a little story with you. Um, I have a practice where every Sunday morning I lay in bed and I ask God what he or she or it has to has to teach me. And oftentimes I get messages like, slow it down, Carol, or take a day off, Carol, or listen to your gut, Carol. You know, I mean, they're just really wise um, messages. And one of the things that people have challenged me on is, well, how do you know that's not you, Carol, talking to yourself? And I guess, one, I believe that spirituality is in me. So if it's me talking to myself, it is spirituality. It is my higher power. It is God. But more importantly, I do believe that when I surrender to what my higher power wants for me, it will always be good. Okay. Fast forward to I was really angry at my husband. He had yelled at me because he, it was time for him to put up a picture, and I just happened to remind him after we had had a back-breaking Saturday, breaking leaves and moving rocks. So he's doing this picture thing with his father, and he pulls the picture off the wall, and he makes a giant hole. And I didn't say anything, but he went bonkers. My husband is a perfectionist. It just drove him crazy. He made this big hole. And so he starts cussing, and he's mad, and he even uses the Lord's name in vain, which he doesn't do, and I don't appreciate. And so... And he yells at me. And, I mean, he's yelling at me. And I'm thinking, who did I marry? This was like our fourth year of marriage. I don't deserve this. I didn't pay. I didn't sign up for this. I didn't pay for this. So I get mad and I get quiet. And I don't talk to him all the way home from the lake. Actually, I went to sleep in the car. And we have this thing. We don't do that. Well, I'll fast forward to the next morning, Sunday morning. I'm laying in bed. And I feel my higher power say, you want to know what to do? Take better care of your husband. And I start arguing. Like, I'm not taking better care of him. Are you kidding me? He cursed at me. He cussed at me. I'm not, I'm not doing nice things for him. And again, I heard my higher power say, take better care of him. So I went downstairs, got him a cup of coffee, brought it up to him. I don't even do that, right? I've never brought him coffee in my life. And I wake him up and I say, hey, honey, do you want a back rub? And this is, of course, after the night before where I wasn't talking to him. And he looks at me, shakes his head, yes. I could tell he thought, who in the heck has possessed her? Well, I got him that cup of coffee. I rubbed his back. We went to church. And we had the nicest day ever. And I was able to shift that energy. So I'm going to ask you to listen to your higher power, too, because it never fails, I promise you. Okay, I got 20 seconds to remind you there will only be one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And if you want that finding your God-given dream, it's on Sex Help with Carol the Coach, my website. You make it a great week, and I'll see you next Monday for more Blog Talk Radio, Sex Help with Carol the Coach.